can be hard to wrap our minds around the overwhelming grace of God. Nothing we can do can make us deserving of it, and because of that, it's often very hard for us to accept. You're listening to Christ is the Answer, and I'm your host this morning, Robin Monks. This morning, Pastor Randy Crozier is going to teach a message on grace and just how important it is in the walk of each believer. Here's Pastor Randy. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This is Paul writing. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You notice how circular all that is? It's back and forth, and he kind of turns the same thing one way, and then he reverses it and says it another way. Paul is really eager to make a point here, the obvious one, that if you're going to be saved, it takes faith in Christ. That all the works and all the good deeds, in particular in this case, the doing of the law, is never going to carry the day. you got to put your faith in Jesus. It goes on and he says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify grace. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, Paul, I want to, I got to give you a little bit of background because I, you know, I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. I find that to be a really uh, back and forth kind of text. You know, if you're reading it, you got to kind of think about it because Paul reverses himself so often, not that he reverses his opinion or he contradicts himself, but like I said, he's kind of weaving back and forth. He looks at the thing this way, and then he turns it on its head, and he looks at it the other way. And it's all about the fact that he's really working hard to make a point. You see, when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, he did so to deal with a negative influence of some false teachers. I don't know if you've uh, read Galatians enough. To, I'm going to guess most of you have read it enough to be familiar with this. You might know that it's in the book of Galatians that we learn that Paul goes head to head with Peter. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you just thought everything in the Bible was all copacetic, you know, that everybody just got along and everything went just hunky dory all the time. But when you read through the book of Galatians, what you'll find is that Paul had to reprove. Peter openly. You see, the strange thing is that Peter is the guy that God called upon to break the barrier from Jewish contextualized Christianity to Christianity that broke out beyond the Jewish community and got in amongst the Jews. 
or excuse me, the Gentiles. You know the story, right? Peter was at a Joppa, and he was in a house, Jewish home, because Peter wouldn't have been anywhere else. And the story goes, we read in, in, in Acts, that he goes up on the roof of a building to pray. And God lowers down a, a sheet. He's having a dream or a vision. And God lowers down a sheet. And in the sheet, or the tarp, were all of these unclean animals. Things that Jews would have nothing to do with. Doesn't say, but pigs or cloven-hoofed animals. Those kinds of things that are prescribed against in, in the Old Testament. And then he says, arise and eat. And Peter says, now this is, you got to understand this, how, how comical this all is, right? So Peter's having a vision. He knows that he's having a vision from God. He knows it's the voice of God. God says, arise and eat. And then Peter instructs God on God's own law. And he says, no, God, I can't do that. That's not possible. And so it happens a second time. The same critters are all there, all unclean. And God says to him, Peter, go and eat. And Peter says, not on your life, God. Finally, the third time. And God begins to speak to Peter. And he begins to tell him that oh, whatever I call clean is clean. Whatever I say is right is right. That's just the way it is. And then he says, you know what, Peter? There's going to be some folks that are going to show up at the door down there. And they're going to invite you to do something that no Jew would do. They're going to invite you to go off with them and to visit the house of a Gentile. Now, a Jew, you never went into a Gentile home like all of those other things that they would never do because it would render them unclean, ceremonially unfit to approach God. They would not go into the home of a Gentile. That's what would happen to them. And as it turns out, if you know the story, that it wasn't just a Gentile, it was a Roman centurion. Now, the Jews had a hate on for the Romans. The Romans were the, uh, the, the embodiment of, imp of oppression and repression in their experience. And God says... To, uh, says to him, you know what, I want you to go there. God takes Peter's very narrow horizons, right? And Peter was a good Jew. And he thought that, you know, even as a Christian, because understand, I think I shared with you that for the first 20 years of the church, almost all believers were Jewish. There are obviously some exceptions because Luke wasn't, wasn't uh, a Jew, and yet he wrote a gospel. Uh, but generally speaking, for the first 20 years, all the converts to Christianity uh, were en masse Jewish. And so um, the first Christians, they thought within a framework. Uh, they, 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 they contextualized their Christianity inside of a fundamentally Jewish outlook on life. And so they took a lot of Jewish ideas and thinking, and they simply brought it into Christianity and superimposed it over things. And so it wasn't just for Peter a matter of being un-Jewish. From Peter's point of view, it was even a matter of being unchristian because Peter didn't know a version of Christianity that wasn't defined inside of the constructs of Judaism. So here's God saying to Peter, Peter, I want you to go and do this. And Peter, there's something inside of him saying, no, I can't do that because that's not the way we do things. That's not the way our tradition defines it. And what does God do? I love this. He just kicked the slats right out of Peter's tradition. And he took him somewhere that he never thought he'd go. And so what does Peter do? He goes off to Cornelius's house, the Roman centurion, the Gentile. And what happens? The, oh, bedlam breaks loose. They give their hearts to Jesus. The Holy Ghost falls and all kinds of stuff. And what happens then? Then the gospel has breached 
the wall of Judaism, and from that point, it never looked back, and it just shot like a rocket out into the Gentile world. Peter was the guy who did that. I mean, he had some initial struggles, but Peter was the man who carried the ball across the line from the Jewish community into the Gentile community. Now, back to Galatians. Of course, well, I guess there's a little intervening story. Peter is the guy who kind of carries the ball into play, but Paul's the guy who picks it up and runs with it. And Paul becomes the, Gentile, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul goes on all those multiple missionary journeys and he establishes churches everywhere throughout the, the Gentile world where he went. So, now Galatians. Paul and Peter are both in Galatia. And some teachers, some false teachers, show up from Jerusalem in Galatia and they begin teaching untrue things. Specifically, they begin to teach that in order for a person to come to Christ, they not only had to put their faith in him and be justified through their faith, but they also had to be circumcised and they had to obey the law of Moses. And only then could you be converted. Only then could you really be a believer. And so they've come to be called Judaizers, these false teachers. They were um, men who claimed to have been converted to Christ. But they were making this addition to the gospel. So they get there. And what happens? Well, they start teaching all this stuff. And Peter, and I guess it should be added, that they were influential men. They were the kind of guys that they'd held a lot of sway at headquarters because that's where Jerusalem was where they came from. Jerusalem was, was ground zero for the gospel at that point in time. It was headquarters. So they show up from headquarters and they're given this message that you got to not only put your faith in Jesus, but you got to be circumcised and you got to keep the law of Moses on top of that. And uh, a lot of pressure there, right? Because these are some heavy hitters, some big guns from head office. And what happens? Peter, the guy who carried the gospel across the line from Judaism into the Gentile world, he capitulates. He gives in. And he stops having any fellowship with the Gentile believers in Galatia. Did Paul ever get cranky about that? He got upset. And he chastises Peter openly for having done this. And others as well. But Peter was, I mean, his example meant something. And for him to go along with this was very disturbing. And so in general, in this epistle to the Galatians, Paul is really wrought up in a very significant way about these false teachers and the influence that they were having or the impact they were having on the believers in Galatia. And uh, so he writes this letter to combat their influence, to address uh, the effect that they were having. Because he knew he knew that this truth that they were proclaiming, that you had to give your heart to Jesus, but you also had to be circumcised and you had to keep the law of Moses, it was wrong. It was a violation and it, it was a, a distortion of the gospel. It was what is typically called legalism. Anybody uh, thought about legalism before and, and what it meant? Now, people say a lot of stuff about legalism. Some people say, well, if you dress a certain way, that's legalism. Well, it's not legalism to dress any given way. That's just, that's ridiculous to say that legalism is expressed by a given mode of dress. I mean, choose to dress how you want. And, and as long as you just don't buy into certain ideas relative to that dress, it doesn't matter. I'll tell you what legalism is. I'll put it in an algebraic formula, all right? 
How many of you like math? I hate math, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I, I just, I'm averse to numbers of all forms. They make me just tremble at the very thought of them. But so algebra is a little different, right? Because you got some alphabet in there. So Jesus plus X equals legalism. So you know what in algebra, what X means, right? You can put whatever in the, in the box or in the X. Jesus plus X equals legalism. What does that mean? Jesus plus anything. That's the de- definition of legalism. When you say, yeah, you're saved, but, but, you gotta, but, you gotta. doesn't matter what the gotta is. If you add anything to Jesus Christ, you see, that's why Paul is so vehement. You got him going, like I said, back and forth. He's kind of weaving around and he's turning it on its head and he's looking at it from the left and he's looking at it from the right and he's inverting it and reverting it and distorting it. And in those few little verses, he covers that ground over and over and over and over. It's like a switchback going up a mountain. Why? Because he was dead set against any kind of distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is justification by faith in him alone. No works, no deeds, nothing else, no X at all in Paul's thinking. No room for that kind of thing. And uh, he was upset at Peter for Peter's failure to support that position. And he was even absolutely shocked and experienced apparently truly deep dismay over the fact that some of the Galatian Christians were giving into it. You know, he said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, he said, I'm, or I am astonished that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, which is no gospel at all. He said, I'm astonished. I can't believe it. Why would you abandon the simplicity of the gospel, the perfect offer of God for redemption on the basis of faith alone, no investment needed on your part, and you would turn away to some cockamamie, claptrap theology, and you're going after something that really is nothing. I am astonished that you are turning away so soon, so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. He was just buffaloed by it. Sometimes it's useful. I, I don't know about you, but you know, I, I think it's, it's useful anyway to, to, to try and enter into the emotional state of mind uh, of the, the, the person that the Holy Spirit is inspiring. Try to get your, your head around the context so you can really kind of grasp the gravity of it all. You really don't get the full impact or the meaning of what Paul has to say as he writes to the Galatians unless you understand the indignation that he was feeling. And, and you, unless you understand on the basis of that deep indignation how grave a transgression or how serious a matter it was to compromise or to monkey about or muck around with the gospel. So he responds with what can only be described as pure righteous indignation. That is the spirit of the letter to the Galatians. Pure righteous indignation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say something to you. I could get away with going the whole distance because Paul is not here, but she warned me. She said, do not 
Do not go all the way with that. In Galatians, I, and understand that I'm going to point you, I'm going to give you a little homework assignment if you're interested and you can, you can deal with it on your own because in the interest of polite company, I'm not going to elucidate entirely on this point, but I want you to understand just how indignant this man is. And understand, this is a man who's writing what he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's indignation is only magnified in the fact that the Holy Spirit is also indignant or more indignant than Paul is himself. So Paul, in writing to these, these, uh, these Galatians and trying to rebut the teaching of these false teachers, he says to the Galatians that he wished that the false teachers would cut themselves off. Now, I'll tell you this, that is an extraordinarily strong remark. It doesn't appear so necessarily in English, but it is a vigorous comment. When he says, I wish they would cut themselves off, it is, it is probably one of the, the most uh, profound or powerful expressions of indignation that you're ever going to find in the Word of God. And I'm not going to tell you what it really means. I will tell you this, if you're interested and you just want to appreciate the depth of Paul's indignation, you go to the NIV or the ESV, one of those, and you'll find instead of cut themselves off, like the King James translates it, because that's also a very polite translation, uh, you'll find exactly what Paul was saying. But the point is, I guarantee you, when you read it, you'll understand how deeply, deeply indignant Paul was. So, um, I'm not going to go through the, the section and, and take it all apart. Other than to say that uh, as Paul goes through in, the, in that, that portion of Scripture that I read to you, he is demolishing their argument, the false teacher's argument. He's, uh, he, his position is that it's nothing short of absolute legalistic folly in every sense of the word, and that their position, their teaching is just the, uh, the, the misguided rantings of a bunch of benighted wannabe teachers who want to claim influence and exercise authority over other people, so they're trying to convert a bunch of folks to their particular point of view. So that's the gist of what the section says. However, there is a phrase at the end of the passage that I, wanted, I do want to draw your attention to. Paul says this. He said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. So he goes all through this section and he said, you know what, these people, uh, well, he didn't say it, but this is the context. These people are teaching this false doctrine. And so in this thing, he's going back and forth and saying, it's through justification by faith. The law doesn't do a thing for you. It's just, you got to understand that. And then at the end of all of that, he makes this statement, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Now that's translated in a wide variety of ways in um, different versions. You understand that every language has its poverty, right? Its limitations. English is not an especially flexible language. Uh, other languages have, are, are far more nuanced. And, and so like, it's uh, probably the, the, the premier example is the word love, right? So we have love. And, and uh, so I love my wife. I love my two daughters. I love my granddaughters. I love my dog. So because of the, the, the limitations, unless you kind of expand into verbs and adjectives, because of the limitations of the language, we use words in a very broad way like love. So uh, I love fish cakes. 
made with desiccated cod. Anybody know where you can get it anymore? Haven't seen it in years, but I used to love fish cakes. My grandmother used to make them. Desiccated cod. But I, but I mean, I love my wife and I love fish cakes. Now in Greek, right, because it is a nuanced language, you've got at least four words or five, depending on, you know, or you take it outside of biblical Greek. You've got at least four or five words, all that would be accurately translated love into English, but every one of them in the original language has a different context. There's agape love, and that's self-sacrificing love. The love of God is agape. And then way down at the bottom, there's eros, erotic love, and that's just a physical, shallow attraction love. Somewhere in the middle, there's filio, which is brotherly love. It's the kind of warm uh, uh, love that friends enjoy with one another. The Greeks, they had it made. I agape you. I filio you. I eros you. We just got love. And so there's, there's a certain limitation to the English language. And so one of the benefits of consulting different translations is sometimes what you do is the translator might elect a different word. And the word is an accurate representation of the translation, but because each one is using a different word, it begins to build a composite picture. It begins to build a piece-by-piece image of how something might look if we had a more developed or we had a more subtle and nuanced language. And so when Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, it's translated variously as, I do not set aside the grace of God. Or, I refuse to stultify the grace of God. I refuse to abandon the grace of God. I do not make void the grace of God. I do not, this is my favorite, nullify the grace of God. See, um, what was happening And what motivates Paul to make this statement, I do not abandon, I do not stultify, I do not void, I do not set aside, I do not frustrate, I do not nullify the grace of God, is because that's exactly what the false teachers were doing. They were frustrating, nullifying, setting aside, abandoning, turning their backs on the grace of God. So, What can we learn from Paul's statement? I do not frustrate or set aside the grace of God. Well, set aside, what does that mean? It it, it actually means to, to throw aside with the utmost contempt, like you would garbage, like a baby's dirty diaper. Who has respect for a dirty diaper, right? (laughs) I'm glad I'm past all that. Paul says I never did it anyway, but I think I did. So... I remember the stench at any rate. Who has any respect for a dirty diaper? You cast it aside. It's a bit of filthy trash. You get rid of it. And Paul is saying that these uh, false teachers were treating grace in a similar way. They were throwing grace aside like so much filthy, rotten, disgusting, reprehensible, vile trash. That's how they were handling grace. To stultify. To stultify means to be stripped of its energy and its force and left powerless and unimpactful. Paul was saying that these people are stripping grace of its force. They are robbing it of its energy. And their message or their teaching is leaving it fundamentally unimpactful and insignificant. Or to abandon grace is to desert or to reject or ditch 
dump or forsake it like an unpleasant or an unwanted acquaintance. Yeah, it's nice to see you, but really don't want to talk to you. And you just get out of there as quick as you can and you abandon that person. Paul said these people are abandoning grace. To make void grace is to invalidate it. To make it erroneous. To deprive it of all legal force or punch. And to nullify grace. Wow. I love this. This is my favorite. To nullify something. What does that mean to nullify something? To obliterate it. To make it so gone, it's as if it never were. Nullify. He said these people, these false teachers, they are nullifying grace. They are so obliterating the grace of God by what they're teaching and what they do that it's as if it had never existed. It's just gone. Not even the evidence of its presence left behind. So what is the point, right? So you're thinking, Randy, you've been going on about all this stuff, Galatians and blah, blah, blah. What has that all got to do with anything that might be at all meaningful for us? Because um, I'm pretty sure that none of you are Judaizers. I'm, I, I'd be willing to wager an entire penny on the fact that there's not one of you in here who is going around proclaiming that we all ought to get circumcised and, and keep the law of Moses. Does, I don't lose any sleep over that. So what has it then got to do with us? The thing is, there are other ways to nullify grace. There are other ways or other things that we can do and not even know we're doing them that void grace. That when we do them, that when we, when we act in a given way or we think in a given way, that we end up like the Judaizers and we abandon grace. We throw it aside. We don't, as I said, necessarily even know we're doing it. But we set grace aside. So let me explain. I don't know anybody in the Word of God who held a higher bar for Christians to arise to than Paul did. I mean, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sets out all some pretty uh, lofty expectations for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. For example, he urges us to put off, Pat mentioned the song that we sang this morning, it was based on this very idea. Paul's the guy who says, put off the old man and put on the new. Lay aside the person you were to become the person you ought to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And really, while it's easy to read, it's a pretty demanding thing. Put off the old man, put on the new. Paul is the guy who demands that we walk worthy of the Lord. More than once he says that, I believe, to the Philippians and then to the Colossians. He says, walk worthy of God so as to please Him in everything that you do. That's a high, high bar to arise to. Paul's the guy who says that we need to be in it to win it. He says of himself, being an example, he said, I run to obtain the prize. I'm not in this thing, he said, like an athlete who just, you know, beat in the air for something to do. I'm in it to win it. And he said, I bring my body under discipline to that end. And his expectation is that we too would be in it to win it. We would be running this race for Christ to obtain the prize. That we would be placing our lives under discipline to that end. That's pretty demanding. And it's either Paul or someone that Paul probably discipled, who in the book of Hebrews urged us to run with great patience and endurance. Great patience and endurance, the race that's set before us. Now, the thing is about those expectations, 
is that we often, and I alluded to this kind of on the way this morning under different circumstances, but you know, we read those expectations and we fail oftentimes to put them in the context of Paul's broader thought. So what happens? We read those expectations and we think it's all about trying harder. So Paul uh, says, you need to put off the old man and you need to put on the new. So I'm going to try and I'm going to try harder all the time. And Paul says, run the race to win the race. So I'm going to try and I'm going to run harder. And Paul says, you need to do it with patience and great endurance. And I'm going to apply myself and I'm going to try harder. And we try and we try and we try harder all the time. For sure, Paul wants us to try. But the thing about Paul is that Paul always understands that our trying has to be coupled with grace because our trying is never enough. It takes the grace of God. Grace that he very willingly dispenses. It's not like you've got to go to to God and say, oh God, would you please give me grace? Now, you might approach him that way, But the truth is, God is eager to dispense grace. God is more than willing to. And so, Paul understands that when he has these these lofty goals for us to to rise to, when he sets these, these, these bars up there for us to get over as we run the race or walk the walk or whatever, that he understands that while he expects us to try to the degree that we're in the race, he knows that our success is always dependent on the applied grace of God. It's God pouring out his abounding strength upon us. Here's the thing. This is how we nullify grace, is that we forget that it takes grace. We get all wrapped up. And understand, I'm not advising you just to take a pill and relax and don't do anything and let it all happen. You know, and if God doesn't make you lift your feet, never lift your feet again. That's not what I'm saying. We do have to be in the race. We need to show up you know, in the right garments, you know, the, the running, jogging pants or whatever, and you know, with your sneakers on and not your work boots. And you got to be there and you got to be at the starting line, ready to go. But you need to understand that as you gear up and you arrive at the starting line, that it all has to be dependent upon grace. And we need to expect the grace of God, just like talking about the Holy Spirit. In fact, in fact, there are many, many, many places in the Word of God where if you look at the context, that grace and the Holy Spirit are often used interchangeably. Now, not in every instance, but often they're interchangeable. And so, how do you become fruitful? If you look in the Bible, it's by grace. How do you persevere? If you look at the Scriptures, it's by grace. How do you become mature in Christ? By grace, according to the Word of God. How do we grow in our love one for another? By grace. How do we achieve holiness? By grace. And how do we deepen our knowledge of God? By grace. We have to be careful that we don't forget that it's all by grace. We have to be careful that we do not frustrate. We need the grace of God desperately in our hearts and our lives. And we need to learn to be people who just access the abounding, ever-available grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can be hard to wrap our minds around the overwhelming grace of God nothing we can do can make us deserving of it. And because of that, it's often very hard for us to accept. You're listening to Christ is the Answer, and I'm your host this morning, Robin Monks. 
This morning, Pastor Randy Crozier is going to teach a message on grace and just how important it is in the walk of each believer. Here's Pastor Randy. 